On the Riabu podcast today, we have a very special guest. He is Bill Padfield, formerly a Chief Executive Officer of Datacraft, Chief Operating Officer, Group Executive, CEO, Chairman at Dimension Data, and most recently, Senior Executive Vice President, Non-Executive Chairman and Board Member of NTT. Bill, thank you so much for coming in today. Morning, Mark. How are you? It's a great pleasure to see you again after all these years. Yeah. And Simon Littlewood uh, joins us here from Riabu as well. I yeah, see. mainly as an observer, of course. Mainly as an observer. Now, there, Bill, we invited you to this podcast because, as you know, Riabu is always concerning itself with how to make sure that your customers pay you on time. Mm. And one of the things that always struck me about your appearances on CNBC when I was still an anchor there and you came in to report on Datacraft's earnings was that you always talked about this concept that no other CEO talked about, DSO, mm. Days Sales Outstanding. Mm. And, and you were very candid too about, for example, the fact that your DSOs, as I remember, were around 112 days or 118 days and, and so on. You may not remember this, but I certainly did. And so as Riabu focuses on helping our listeners get their DSOs down, who better than you who's headed most recently a $4.5 billion global services business at NTT to share a few insights about what mm. you did to bring those bring the cash in and to uh, make sure that you know your customers paid you on time. But first, uh, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got to be where you are <sighs> today. I don't want to start uh, too far ago, uh, but I started my career in coding, programming, as it used to be called, coding, now everybody calls it, and uh, moved up to become a systems analyst and then decided that money was where the sales were um, and moved into sales and then moved up sort of general management and so on. Um, many years ago with Prime Computer, then Alliant Computer, and uh, 1992 I joined this uh, company which later became Equant, um, and I uh, was heading up their global sales and marketing um, out of the UK. Uh, and Equant was part of the CETA organization, which was owned by 430 airlines and had this global network around the world, a data communications network. And uh, the plan with creating this company called Equant was to IPO this business, uh, which we successfully did in July 1998. And it was a simultaneous IPO on the New York Stock Exchange and the Paris Bourse, which is pretty unusual. Mm. And I remember the Economist newspaper described this as the sexiest company on the planet, which was incredible for us. So this was, this was great timing. And, and this was because you listed in Paris, is that right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't think it had much to do with it. But it was um, obviously with the roots being with CETA um, linked into France and so on. Um, but it was an incredibly successful IPO. So uh, I was in New York at the time running the US business um, as, as well as my uh, global sales and marketing role. And then I was asked on uh, around October 1st, 97, to move over to Asia Pacific to do a turnaround on the business here prior to the IPO. So this was a two-year stint, which has turned into 23 years. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's a very similar story with most expats here. So. Yes. Um, and then uh, after the turnaround and the secondary public offering and then the third public offering, which we all called C3PO because we're very childish, um, but as the uh, third public offering came through, um, it was beginning to stabilize and, and great. And then I got a phone call from a headhunter uh, who said we have a systems integrator here in Singapore, publicly listed. 
and they're having a few challenges. And I said, that's Datacraft. And they said, well, maybe, maybe not. But we just want to know. I said, it's Datacraft. So, right. yeah, it, Because no, you would have known that anyway, being in the You business. know your competitors. So November 1st, uh, November 1st uh, 2001, I joined Datacraft. And they were Cisco's systems largest partner in Asia Pacific, a network integrator, growing fast. And, but they had their first challenges. And they wanted somebody to come in changed the way the business was operating. They were running into receivables challenges. There was more cash sitting in uh, their uh, clients' uh, bank accounts rather than their own. Mm -hmm. um, they were not transitioning from product resale into services very successfully, so they didn't have much of an annuity business. Uh, and they were stalled from a growth point of view. So uh, that was the challenge that I was presented with then. And uh, I guess the biggest challenge was Threefold. The first one was the board didn't trust me because I was asking for to make some radical changes. So the board support was a bit challenged, to say the least. Um, they, sorry to interrupt, but didn't they hire you for that? Yeah, they did. But I think what I came out with was a bit more radical than they were expecting. Uh, and one of the board members, a uh, gentleman whose name I've forgotten now, but he was the, um, the chairman of um, Telstra. Uh, he, outside one of the board meetings, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you're flying through some turbulent air right now, don't worry, it'll get better, which was the only thing I needed was just support, please, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a few of the others were a bit concerned. And then I fired 80% of the leadership team, which uh, also concerned a lot of people. Um, and then I cut the head count in half, so about a thousand people took out of the organization. So. Leadership didn't like me, the uh, employees didn't like me, and the board didn't like me. But other than that, it was a great time. <laughs> the investors probably liked you. Well, we, we then, then had to take in um, the receivables challenges we were facing in China, where we had um, uh, receivables up there that were over a thousand days old. And all of this is public knowledge, but a it's, thousand it's days, a thousand days old. Years. And uh, I won't name names, but I was told that this was normal in China and it was fine and relax. And uh, my response to that was, it's not normal for anywhere on this planet, maybe some other planet, but not here. Um, so we had this uh, amazing report done by one of the big four uh, companies who went up there. And if it wasn't so serious, it was the most hysterical document I've ever read because it was just story after story of attempting to recover receivables when it was very clear that they didn't want to pay, they had no knowledge of it, it was just everything under the sun. So um, th this was a big problem. So in the rest of the company, there was still this sentiment that receivables were like, yeah, it's revenue that counts because all they'd done was to just grow like crazy. It was the internet boom, everything was about growth, growth, growth. Yeah. It was all PowerPoint, it wasn't Excel, you know. So, uh, and as, as to go to the balance sheet, was unheard of. And even with the financial analysts who were tracking the stock, they were all over the income statement. And they, they never asked a single question about the balance sheet. They didn't, with their own admission afterwards, they didn't even study the balance sheet. It was all about reporting on the income statement. Sounds like television presenters. Well, so, so cash was completely off the table. Yes. So, you know, working on this basic premise that revenue is only vanity and cash is, you know, profit is sanity, but cash is reality. You've got to fuel everything with cash. So this was the big focus on DSO and days payable. You know, are we paying too soon and all this good stuff? And these metrics were sort of driven into the company. So just one more second. Carry on. It, it, it was all about focusing a new leadership team that was used to driving the business by metrics, not a hero culture of we just landed a big deal, we'll land another big deal. You know, it was all about are you measuring the right things and are you putting enough priority on it? And day sales outstanding was one of those key metrics as the same as days payable. So. 
wow, what a fabulous story. Um, th- there were two other points that you wanted to mention. Or were, they, were they already it about China? Well, China was, was uh, y- 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 we all talk about, from the Western world, talking about paying school fees in China. Um, and my goodness, we paid school fees. Uh, we bought a couple of companies up there. And this is when I personally learned that there's normally three sets of books. There's one for the tax man, one for the way they run the business, and one for you that might want to buy the companies. Yes. <laughs> and no, none of them sort of linked together. So um, we, we paid some hefty fees to buy our way into China, to buy companies up there. And we had some real surprises, which I, I won't go into at this point, but it was pretty ugly, to say the least. And we even had to make claims on our insurance policy for criminal problems and everything in China. So, But it was all around managing cash, managing cash all the time. Uh, and back then, if you took products into China, you had to go through these import-export companies all the time. And there was a big chain of payments through this, which always got disputed and problems, which led to a lot of the receivables yes. issues. So. And so by the time you left uh, Datacraft by 2008, you'd obviously turned a lot of that around. It was loss-making $350 million public company. You turned it into a highly profitable $1.5 billion company. How did you do it? Well, 2008 was when um, our shareholder, Dimension Data, decided to acquire the whole company. So I didn't actually leave Datacraft. I was just absorbed into Dimension Data. Mm. And Dimension Data was an an amazing story of its own. Um, Having started the business out of Johannesburg in South Africa against all odds, they became one of the largest systems integrators in the world. Uh, And uh, they also were focused on a lot of emerging markets. Um, which is why a lot of the major U.S. competitors left them alone. They'd given them room to grow and grow and grow till they became an $11 billion business. Um, And that uh, business was a bit of a challenge in 2008 because it had quite a good uh, brand strength in the rest of the world. Um, But because of Datacraft's public listing here in Singapore, we were well known throughout the Asia-Pacific region. And outside of Australia, the Dimension Data brand wasn't known at all. So we had to do some brand rebuilding and all this good stuff, which was was a bit of a challenge. Um, uh, But that only was a couple of years, because in 2010, NTT of Japan turned up and then bought the entire group. So uh, we were then absorbed into NTT, which was um, another amazing journey. So if you talk about just being in the right place at the right time several times, uh, it's worked out incredibly well. But how did you turn around those thousand-day yeah. receivables yeah. and all of those other things in trying to collect the cash? Okay, so I, I, I had a, some experience turning businesses before, and the, the Equant business in North America was a challenge as well. So there was a few things that I'd learned there which I applied to the Asia-Pacific business. And then when that worked, it was okay, that formula kind of works, and then apply that to Datacraft, and that worked and so on. So it, it was um, a, a learning from some fantastic leaders that I'd had the luck to work for over the years, uh, getting in some great third party advice, which is why I ran into Simon all those years ago. Um, and uh, you know, just, just listening and absorbing all the time. Uh, so I ended up with this simple mantra, which was um, the three M's, which is the thing I apply to any new business, which is to find the model first. What is the financial model? that you're trying to run? What, what's the gross margins you need? What's the, what can you spend on your, you know, your OPEX? 
what can you return to shareholders, what's the expectation of shareholders, and so on. And then the second one is to really focus on a range of metrics on your balance sheet. You know, what, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to cash burn because we're growing like crazy and we've got benevolent investors? Or are we trying to generate cash as much as we can to scale our own growth? You know, are we paying dividends as we were as a public company? Are we buying back shares as we did also as a public company? What are we doing with those cash balances? And then to, to focus the leadership team on those metrics. So it's get the model right first and an organizational model that supported it. And we moved to a two straight line matrix model across the whole of Asia Pacific, 13 countries we operated in. Uh, and then the second one was get the metrics on that model. So you're tracking the right leading metrics, not the lagging metrics, because everybody can check your balance sheet and your income statement, but it's the activities that lead to those outcomes that's the priority. Make sure you track those metrics. So I got the company um, really focused on building a strategy map, moved the whole company over to balance scorecards so they really understood it. And then the last one was to make sure that we had the management that understood how to manage a business using metrics rather than, I've got a friend I pay golf with, we can have a deal. You know. So it was bringing the leadership team up to that level that understood this business, putting the right metrics in place, not too many, not too few, but just the right balance, which takes time, uh, and then really building it around that centralized model. So, um, and then year two was to move into the three S's. Sorry, it's all a bit acronym driven, but it sounds But it's an easy way because you can stick this on the wall, you can stick it on uh, coasters, you can stick it on t-shirts, and mm -hmm. your team follows it, right? Um, and then the, the second one was to really focus on sales. So, uh, so the, the yeah. three S's, what was the first one? Three S's, sales, services, and solutions, to make sure we had the right sales model to go to market the right um, services business that we could transform selling products on a transactional basis to building more and more annuity contracts. And the wonderful thing about annuity, which the whole industry now is moving to, is the fact that you don't have to get up and sprint every morning to have your income. It's already there. you know. And then the last one was what solutions are we taking to what markets? Um, because you can't be a master to everything. So. It was very simply uh, cutting down the amount of vendors we work with, cutting the number of clients we work with so that we could focus, focus, focus. So I guess the key word was just focus the business. Now, was that something that you did because of the state the business was in, or is that something you'd recommend to anyone listening to this? It, well, there's a, the, it would be good for anybody because as you're starting a business, if you haven't got these things clear in your mind, you, you're going to be challenged. Uh, if you're doing a turnaround, then it's an absolute priority. If you're scaling for growth, then you should have it as a, a front and center. If you've got other issues, if you haven't gone back to basics, like what is the business model I'm trying to run? Um, and uh, if you brought in any member of my team uh, right now and said, what are these key metrics and mantras? They could all recite them off by heart, even now. You know, Can uh, you recite them off by heart? For example? Yeah, but I don't want to reveal too much because the way that we ran that business uh, has been absorbed um, into a, a huge company called NTT today. And some of the metrics that I've just left only a few months ago are still in place today and uh, still driven by that global services organization. So I, I don't particularly want to put it on a plate to our competitors on how they run their business. Okay, that's cool. But there's lots of other stuff that we can, sure. in fact, we must explore with you. Because you talked about the first M was the model. Yeah. And you said you have to have the organizational model to mm. support the financial model. Mm. Clearly, there were a thousand people who weren't part of that. Mm. Now, how difficult was it for you to make that decision? Because, you know, as business owners, we're all so emotionally invested in the business. How do you make that call um, and kind of bite the bullet and say, I'm sorry, guys, but we're going to have to make these cuts? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, 
a bit of a, an, an emotional insight to it as well. The first one was my father had just died a few months beforehand, um, which, would been, which had been a, a very traumatic experience. Uh, and then my wife walked out on me because I'd been spending so much time at work. And uh, um, so I had the combination of handling a divorce, handling my dad's estate, and rebuilding a business. And there were certain nights I can remember just going home and crying my eyes out. It was, it was just so um, lonely, I think was the worst. Uh, and, and as you know, in Singapore, there is three forms of communication. There's telepresence, telephone, and tell anybody. Mm. And so you couldn't go out and share the problems you were having with anybody, because otherwise it would end up you know, public domain. Mm. And most of the people I knew in Singapore were people who worked with me or business partners. I didn't have a friend structure at the time. So, um, this was an incredibly lonely experience, and it's probably the, the closest I've come in my life so far to literally losing it, you know. Um, but for some reason, the leadership team that we built as a team into Datacraft became amazing support and believers in the journey. And all of a sudden, what was incredibly negative turned into something incredibly positive. So much so that we still keep in touch today. You know, wherever they've ended up in the world, we're still very, very close. It's like a band of brothers almost. It's very curious and, and sisters. Um, so what happened was just the drumbeat of improving the results because don't forget, as a public company, we had to report every 90 days, which you're... you're yes, you came which in for quarterly announcements right? on yeah. CNBC. Yes. And, um, you know, there's nothing more to focus the mind than having your scorecard read by the public every 90 days. Um, so if you didn't show progress, I knew that I wouldn't be a very long playing record inside of this, uh, this organization. So um, we had to improve, had to improve, and it was building those uh, compelling events inside the company of this is a disaster, we need to be in disaster mode, we can't be in business as usual mode, and creating that pace and that urgency. And this was something that I'd lifted from the Equant days because we'd sustained that for a year and a half prior to the public IPO, which meant that we were all running 100-hour weeks um, regularly, which is why I was traveling so much. And uh, So it's maintaining that intensity to get the company turned around and bringing in more and more talent that understood the future and, instead of just talking about the past. And it's once you hit that tipping point, magical things started to happen. Well, thank you for sharing that. So that, that drumbeat, clearly helped you emotionally as well, gave you perhaps some structure, yeah. but it was really the, I, I suppose, the routine of, of this that perhaps also kept you sane. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, I, there wasn't much in the way of routine at the time. <laughs> um, it, was, it was kind of fire drills every five minutes, but it, it was, um, and, and there was a few other major incidents as well, which I can't go into publicly, but they, 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 there was a lot of issues that, uh, that had to be sorted at the time, so it was just, an incredible urgency um, to get things resolved that you block everything else out of your mind. You just get it done, get it done, get it done. And I guess it, it all comes down to personal focus, never mind the business focus. And um, when the results started to improve, you, you could see the change in sentiment with the board, the change in sentiment with the employees, and more importantly, the change in sentiment with the shareholders. All of a sudden, you had all of your stakeholders and your vendor partners suddenly starting to say, this isn't nonsense, this is, this is working. Oh my goodness, you can see the green shoots, you can see to happen. And then all those energies that seemed to be working against you suddenly started to work for you. Now, we still had this problem over receivables uh, because we needed the cash, anything you're gonna do in a successful business, the cash feeds absolutely everything. And the wonderful thing about an integration business is the cash flow is incredibly strong. 
um, even though your margins may be razor thin on certain parts of the business, your cash flow can be amazing. And this is when I ran into Mr. Littlewood one day, and I don't even remember where or when, but I think it was we, met, we met at the Economist, it? It the I think. Economist meeting, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, and uh, I said, I've got some challenges with this stuff. And Simon said, I, I, I can help you. And the first reaction was, yeah, sure. Um, but then subsequent conversations, it was very clear that he knew what he was talking about. So um, we uh, engaged in a period of uh, however many months it, it was at the time. And it really helped us build a structure in this whole quote to cash process. Um, and once we'd worked out inside the organization that generating a quote was costing us thousands of dollars, and again, I won't go into how many, but it was a shocking number. Um, we were just generating quotes like crazy for anything. So that was one area of the business we had to focus our time and effort and look at a lot more automation. And of course, since then, all of this has been highly automated inside the company. Uh, the next one was to understand um, you know, how we were recovering things from our clients, how we were prioritizing focus and everything around it, which you know, is, uh, is again, Simon's areas of expertise. But that meant suddenly we were generating cash. Uh, and the cash was, as you remember, 120 days, 118 yes. days, down to whatever, 90 days. And we had various countries in uh, the region, such as India, who were breaking records. They were down below 20 days, I remember. On a, uh, and everybody says, impossible. In India, it can't be. Well, they because did they all say the same thing as they do in China, right? That's yeah, just exactly. how it's done. No, it's but done India here. was always amazing. And uh, our teams around from New Zealand up to uh, even China were starting to turn the, turn the corner and generating more cash. So we then were faced uh, with success problems, which was, do we pay dividends? Do we start to pay back, uh, you know, pay back, uh, buy back our shares on the open market? Do we do further investments? And in the end, we were generating cash at such a successful level that we were able to do all three. So. Very, very satisfied. Let's take a, a couple of more detailed looks at some of the things mm. you've said. How does it cost thousands of dollars to produce a quote? For those of you listening who perhaps wonder, you know, what's the difficulty in starting a Word document and writing that Yeah, quote? you can imagine that um, it, when you're building a, a technology solution as a systems integrator, there's many, lots of moving parts. First of all, there are a, a number of different pieces of technology from different vendors that you have to get quotes for. You have to make sure that the software level is at the right level on these various devices. You have to make sure it's got the right cards inserted, the right cables with it, all the basic stuff. And then there's all the higher end stuff with the professional services to do the installs. Have you got the right management uh, uh, contracts on the back of it for support levels, multi-year contracts? So the whole thing actually has several thousand moving parts in it to generate a, a sizable quote. It's not like somebody coming in saying, uh, like you would in a distributor, maybe I want you know, three of these, four of these, two of these. This was much more complex. So sometimes it would take several weeks to generate a quote. And the reason the cost is there is because it's got to touch so many people. Right. You know, different parts of the business. And this is where we weren't terribly well organized. And then once you could tell we were in 13 different countries with 13 different subsidiaries, our ability to bring together a solution for a client was when the client was Pan-Asia. Because at the time, we only had really HP and IBM as competitors. Uh, a lot of new entries into that market since then. But back then, it was us and those two. And we wanted to be way more agile than the other big boys. Um, and despite our abilities uh, not being the best, we were still way faster than these guys. Right. So it enabled us to put a quote together in six or seven different countries uh, for an international bank, for example. And the reason they liked us is because they had one throat to choke. And they could have one contract 
one contact relationship with us, but also the fact that we could structure the payment terms where they would do their cash collection and payments, whatever it may be, locally, um, to, to, so they could do all the tax reclaim and all that good stuff, or they could have it centralized and then we would handle the whole thing for them. So it's all a matter of how their procurement operation works. So, the point here is that each of these quotations for these complex projects was unique. These were snowflake type deals and this is where our costs were. We had to build up and build up and build up more and more people which took time, lots of people and therefore the cost of a quote. So if your bid to win ratio is out of whack and you end up quoting you know, 80% of the time and only winning 20%, you've got massive costs inside the company that build up very quickly that nobody really is observing. It's just normal. And until you start to dig into it and understand each step of the process, you know, where your costs are, uh, the first thing you do is you shock rigid. You challenge it, as I did with Simon and his team. This can't be right. We can't be spending this kind of, but then you realize it's absolutely bang on. And then you build that in. Now, of course, nowadays it's all automated. You've got, you've got bots everywhere. You've got all this stuff that's doing all this stuff in place of people. And even then, the quotation process is complex because each of the vendors that we used to partner with may have millions of SKUs on their price books. And these SKUs could be updated three, four times a year. So how do you keep up with your systems to keep all this data, which then means you lead to these B2B links from an IT point of view so that they update their systems, it automatically updates your systems, and so on. But this all takes time and money to invest in. Mm. Sales. Yeah. As Simon always says, a lot of the problems with getting paid on time is actually embedded in the sales team because they're the ones talking to the customer. They're the ones who possibly circumvent some of the things that your finance department has put into place, like a credit policy, and say to the customer, don't worry, just give me the order. You can pay whenever you feel like Yeah. How did you manage that? It was a change uh, um, in the culture of, with the salesperson. The principle of hit and run had to go. This whole idea of landing a deal and disappearing, um, nah, that, that's not going to cut it. Um, and there was a, a very good principle which is already in place in the company, but we just enforced it more, which was the sales guy didn't get paid until we'd been paid. Uh, and that changed behavior significantly. Um, it wasn't terribly popular to be driving that home, as you can imagine, because once a guy comes in with a purchase order, um, you know, they think that the party should start. And yes. of course it's, well, good, thank you very much, well done, but when the money comes in, but then we have a big party. Um, so it was linking the stage payments together and also understanding that the salespersons, um, you know, what they live for, a lot of sales guys, and I can remember the days of being the sales guy myself, which I guess I still am, is you, you, you live for the recognition. Mm -hmm. It's not just the money, it's the recognition. You want to be seen as successful by your peers and so on. And you have to do the recognition of the success at the right time. It can't be walking in the door with a PO. It's got to be, and this guy got the check. And by the way, it cleared. <laughs> yes, it's not just the check, it cleared. You know? um, and, and that's when you can do your celebratory uh, um, behavior. So. Um, part of it was that. The other one was to make sure that during the prospecting and the pipeline review that you're actually setting this up to be successful in a payment process. To make sure that this, you understand the structure of the deal, the milestones of the deal, because 
in large, again, complex IT projects, there is an area of consultancy, there's an area of software development now, which, uh, you know, you've got your whole DevOps world, or this whole change in ongoing development for different solutions. So unless you are milestoning it very, very clearly with the client, there's always a reason why, uh, sorry, but that's slightly the wrong color, you know, and uh, therefore I'll put it off. You've got to make sure it's crystal clear. And that starts with the very first engagement with the salespeople and the consulting team. It can't be after the fact. Mm. This is what Simon always says. Yeah, brilliant to, to hear all this, Bill. Um, it's, a, it's a few years ago, but, uh, but many companies still face exactly the same issues. And if they don't uh, address those issues, perhaps, in, a, in the early stages, they can come back to bite them in a very, very big way. We talked about the, the work on quotations, and one of the hardest conversations I have sometimes is making customers, clients who are struggling for cash to understand that they've got to go back to the beginning of the process rather than focus on fighting to get the money from the customers that owe them money. Because mm. if, you, if you don't do both those things simultaneously, um, you don't basically change. So mm. you talked about quotations. The quotation process is huge mm. in, in most of the companies that I've, that I've been asked to help because that the sales messages, the data you collect, all of those kinds of things, they basically set the tone for whether or not your customer thinks that you take payments and pricing seriously or whether it's just an afterthought. Mm. I think there's one other sentiment here which I, I don't want to um, underplay, which is tone from the top. Mm -hmm. um, you, you really do have to set the right tone on this and um, the chairman uh, of our business at the time, uh, a, a super super gentleman, a gentleman a name check, Patrick Cornby, um, he came in from the banking world, he was an expert, a real expert at mergers, acquisitions and so on. And when we used to sit in the board meetings, he would say, I don't want to see the receivables, I want to see all the receivables. I want to see even the 10K that's 180 days old. I want to see that 5K. Why hasn't that been settled? It's 320. So something I learned from this, and I still do, is I examine every receivable, not just the big ones. Because the temptation for most companies is, you know, the $2 million we're owed or whatever it may be, we'll put all hands to the pump to get that one resolved. Meanwhile, they've got 40 million of small deals out there they're not even aware of. So it's focusing on those small deals to make sure that none of those goes. Uh, and if you set that from the chairman level or the CEO level through the company, believe me, <coughs> that becomes part of your culture. Uh, but it's got to be done through inspection, inspection, inspection. You know, the moment you think it's taken care of and you move on to something else, it goes back exactly the way it used to be, unless mm -hmm. it's all done through automation. And very few companies have got to that point yes. yet. So this is the third M in, in the three M, is that right? Yeah, it's the, it's the management team that understands running through metrics. And if you've got the right metrics in place that's tracking this, and you've got the right management there that's sitting there on those metrics uh, with the right dashboards and things, which is which has you know, changed so much since those days at Datacraft. Now with this whole world of digital and dashboards, and uh, I, I used to be able to get all the performance metrics of all of our support centers in the world on my mobile phone, 7x24. I mean, the world is so different now. Mm. And that stuff was virtually live. It wasn't real time, but it was virtually five, 10 minutes delayed. Um, so to be able to run your receivables and things like that now, it's no longer the tools, it's no longer the dashboards, all this stuff's available and it can all be put in place very, very quickly um, to enable you to manage your business in ways that you dreamt of even 10 years ago. Yes. 
But why does the culture go back to how it was if management doesn't have that inspection mindset? That, that implies that there is something inherently difficult about understanding customer expectations and meeting them. I think it's just priorities, priorities inside a company. If you, if you are um, uh, a, and I, again, culturally there's different. If you, if you have a leadership team which is empowered and each part of that leadership team measures a different part of the business, rather than everything going back to a maverick executive chairman or a CEO that has to inspect everything, you just don't have the time to do it as an individual. So you've got to force this stuff down into a leadership team that you truly trust and hold those people accountable so that you know ultimately my CFO would be tracking this data and reporting it into me um, and I would be taking my time on the exceptions. If you're doing it yourself 100% of the time, then clearly you haven't got time for anything else. So, and as a CEO, you know, most of your meetings should be 15, 20 minutes long in my view. You, you don't go beyond that. At the moment you're sitting in a meeting for two hours, they're wasting your time uh, and you're wasting theirs. So you should be there judging and deciding, judging and deciding, judging and deciding. And your leadership team that's empowered below you should be taking care of these issues and managing these issues. It always comes down to systems and tools because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, the old mantra, mm. you've got to be able to manage this stuff um, through metrics. And uh, again, it's back to your dashboards and your systems and tools. But is there something inherently distracting from looking at receivables? I mean, for example, when you say that you looked even at the $10,000 yep. bill that's been outstanding for 180 days, you know, one of the things that Simon says is focus on the biggest customers who owe you the most. Uh, and, and, and that there has to be a different approach to some of those little ones. No, for sure. Um, the, the key point was that even up in the board meetings, we were looking at everything. Uh, and that's the message that went through the client. Obviously, your teams uh, below that, you've got to prioritize in some way, shape, or form. So um, the priorities would be getting in those big numbers, there's no question. Um, but again, with complex IT projects, it was a matter of have we delivered what we said we'd deliver? Because a lot of the time we weren't getting paid is because we'd missed milestones. Revenue recognition. And it, it was a part yeah. of, yeah. And, and this is something, again, all, all tech companies, and I can't speak other than my experience with tech companies, RevRec is something that the auditors are looking at. It's, you know, it's, seven it's, by 24. It's engineering companies. I mean, Rolls-Royce Engines, a company I worked for years ago, where they've got lots of boffins working on stuff, and they never get paid because they don't recognize the opportunity to raise the invoice, because the people that are driving the work really aren't interested in whether or not we get paid. They're interested in, yeah. in doing the thing, right? It's the same in every industry, I think. But, but it's a little bit different in the sense that the auditors are always checking you're not bringing that reverect point forwards because it's very tempting if you're struggling for growth to say, okay, we're going to yeah. recognize those milestones slightly ahead of where they should be. So you've always got to keep an eye on being straight so that you can report everything to the auditors yeah. so that mm -hmm. you don't fall into that temptation. Maybe we should say for our, for our audience, rev rec, re revenue recognition, the time at which you actually cut the bill and how you define that in your contract with the customer in a complex business where there's a combination of products and services being delivered is absolutely critical. It's the same for for your business as well. Um, if, you, if in the enthusiasm of the sale, I mean, you've talked about that a little bit, mm. you know, you kind of let those things remain unclearly stated, ambiguous, then you're setting yourself up for a situation where you bill and the customer doesn't recognize it, or you don't bill when you should have done, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So I created uh, a long time ago this commercial team inside the organization, which I'd completely forgotten. And I think it may have been part of that uh, time when you were talking with us on. Mm. 
um, which was to make sure that the salesperson had the right support yeah. from a commercial expert. Because we had a lot of um, good accountants inside the company, but they weren't necessarily the right people to construct commercial contracts. Um, we also had lawyers inside the company who weren't necessarily the right. So this crossover point between sales, legal, and financial is this area that they call commercial. And we hired in some really good commercial heads who understood how to structure these deals in the first place. Um, and were also the kind of people that you could sit next to the salespeople and the sales team in front of the client negotiating or leading the negotiations. And that became a big difference because first of all, the salespeople didn't trust them. And their nickname was the sales prevention team, you know, because <laughs> you know, these guys were always trying to stop the deal, stop the deal. And they weren't trying to stop the deal. They were just trying to make sure that other than having a, an order, that this transaction was going to be successful was going for to be both completed. us and for the client. Because yes. yeah. if you're not going away happy saying we want to do more business at this level, something's wrong on one or both sides of the equation. So the commercial team added a huge amount of value and that, that's quite a substantial structure inside the organization on a global basis. We're here in part um, because, as Mark said, Briabu is about getting fairness for SMEs on receivables. Mm. Um, because SMEs have had a tough time and many of the things that you've described that we did together what, 15 years ago, is it, um, are huge issues for SMEs and, and the evidence of that, and it's very interesting because this is somewhat different to your story, your, your, your great story of success, Bill, which is, which is very compelling, and that is that if we look at what's happened with SMEs and their DSOs over the last few years, not just in Singapore but globally, there's an overwhelming trend for small to medium-sized enterprises to get paid later and later and later, and for the larger companies to manage their cash flow more effectively. That trade-off is, is very evident, um, and to some extent, I think, uh, has been encouraged by the fact that there's so much cheap credit flushing about. In other words, if you're, if you're an SME and you're struggling to get your much bigger customers to pay you because they're rather good at holding on to their money, you can borrow money. And that's, is that really a good solution? So, so I'm, do you have any reflections yeah, on the plight no, of the SME? Yeah, yeah. Um, so now I'm spending um, uh, a significant amount of my time with tech startups, um, both looking at it from a, a, a any stage funding point of view, but also from a what I call a, a parental supervision point of view. They're looking for the experience on how to grow, how to enter new markets, how to develop their business. Um, which is something I, I like doing. And um, while you've got incredibly low interest rates, cheap credit, it can lead them into very bad discipline, there's no question. Mm. Um, because th these interest rates, okay, then we may be low for a half a decade or a decade from now, I don't know, but whatever it is, you can't have that kind of behavior for long. And it's not that, sustainable. And it's not sustainable. So yeah. at some point, you've got to have the discipline inside your company to say, I'm sorry, but. Um, we're not going to deliver services unless you pay. And for a small company, this is often a very, very awkward situation, especially when they're dealing with a very large client. Mm. So, <laughs> yes, think of the publicity. So, 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 yeah. so if you set yeah. it up right in the beginning, which is what you've already said, but it, it's critical, if you set it up right in the beginning, it doesn't become an issue. And uh, yeah. if you're a startup, and you know, I've talked a little bit, I'm writing about this at the moment, I'm actually writing the chapter on startups at the moment, mm. it's Actually, you, a startup, are in a very good position compared to a lot of much bigger companies who find themselves with a big pile of unpaid receivables, kind mm. of like what you did when you picked up Datacraft, which is that you can get it right from the start. Yeah, right? yeah you're absolutely right. And with uh, a lot of the tech companies that I'm working with at the moment, they're nearly all starting their businesses in the annuity services world. 
So it's very easy to stop the service if you don't get paid. You know, in the old world where it was purely transactional, you'd, you'd transact something, you'd transfer title to the client, and that would be the end of it, and then you'd sit there waiting indefinitely to get paid. It's too late, you've transferred title, it's all gone. You know, mm. At least with an annuity services model, you can uh, threaten to switch the service It's like buying Netflix. Exactly Don't pay your same. bill, no, exactly turn the it same. off, right? Exactly the same. Mm. But it's having that culture, and a number of the companies, uh, one I was the CEO of a, uh, a company I was talking to in India just a few days ago, he said, we don't discount at all. Uh, we don't discount, and as far as receivables go, we didn't get into details on receivable, to be fair to him, but um, you, you could see it was the same mentality. It, it, it's 100% it's or nothing. And yeah. again, with this world of annuity services, you can do that. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because Mark and I talk about this a lot. Almost one of the first things I almost always hear when I come across a company that's got receivables issues is we've tried discounting, we've tried doing this and we've tried doing that. That doesn't work because it's really more of the same. The reality mm. is either your customer takes your terms seriously or he mm. doesn't, right? Yes. And at the end of the day, paying him extra for doing what he was supposed to do in the first place is not a really very helpful model because what it does is it, it effectively opens a renegotiation. Um, on, on whether or not the original terms uh, should be taken seriously. Yeah, and, and then you come down to a conversation around value because yeah. if, if you are an annuity service provider that's got something truly unique, discounts never even in part of the conversation. No, nor should they um, be right. But if you are a me too company fighting for a little bit of market share, then obviously you're going to discount, you're going to do anything to try and get your fingers on the cliff face. So it, it all depends on where you're positioned in the industry as mm. well, I suspect. Bill, you, you mentioned uh, an interesting point about um, you know, uh, about what seems like maybe 10 minutes ago. You, you talked about the, the, the sitting around and discussing, did we actually deliver for the client what they had ordered mm. as being an integral part of whether they got, mm. they, you got paid on time. Mm. That level of introspection, do you think that happens enough? Or are people far too keen to blame the customer for non-payment? How many times did you find that actually the reason you didn't get paid is because of something you did or did yeah, not do? Quite, quite a significant amount of time it was, was us, it was internal. Um, there had been expectations that had been set and often not documented in the sales process. So it's again, it was back to sales. This is in the early days, not, mm -hmm. not nowadays, but in the early days there were things that were um, dates that were agreed outside of the contract. There was handshakes done on golf courses. There was yeah. many things, you know, I know we said next August, but we'll get it done by July kind of stuff. Yeah. And then of course July comes and it doesn't get done. Then the guy says, I'm paying you. And he said, but the contract says August. So there, there was a lot of awkward moments that were undisciplined, let's say. So having those reviews at the, at the beginning, which was the, uh, the bid review board, um, or orbs, we used to call them the opportunity review boards, was to make sure that you had the thing structured before you even started writing a bid. So that, that you had a lot more discipline about where would the resources come from inside of the company? Are we really going to allocate them to this? Because just bidding can cost millions sometimes, depending on how many people are committed to it, how long the bid process takes. You've got you know encyclopedias of bid documents that you have to complete and so on. So th there's a big cost of bidding. The second one then is once you've gone through a decision that you're gonna go rather than no go, is to understand, do you then have a competitive bid before you actually put it on the table? And then afterwards was that constant review is the quoted margins that we had inside yeah. the review, are they actually being met by actual margins afterwards? And are milestones being met? Do we need to reset yeah. dials with the client so that it's not just fixed? Uh, you would constantly go back and say, look, this needs a change review, this one needs this, this needs that, um, to make sure that you've got a, a journey that's going along with the client because often there will be 
dead solid dates about installations of brand new data centers, for example, and then the client comes back to you and says, sorry, the contractor can't finish by that date, can't give you access because the building's not finished. Well, that's not the client's fault and it's not our fault. So as long as you have a relationship where you both then reset the dials and make sure you reset the payments aligned to that, you can be okay. But it's that constant dialogue and it's the whole, I would summarize it as the client experience. Are they having a good experience working with you? Do they trust your project team? Do they not project? And if it starts to have conflict from the beginning, change your own project mm. manager mm. immediately because it's a lot of it's down to chemistry and, as you know and so, yeah. chemistry and i think for where it has gone wrong because particularly when you start an undertaking like this there will be situations where the leakage margin leakage versus your original target will have been prolific to do a, a, a margin waterfall analysis and honestly internally look at where that happened and how you can correct that you know um, i think perhaps one of the reasons mark asked the question was one of the things we commonly find, perhaps slightly more in Asia than elsewhere, is a, is a reluctance to acknowledge where these off-piece conversations occurred and where things were done that have damaged your margin mm. outcomes. Mm. Um, and creating, so I wonder how challenging it is to create a culture of honesty where people actually actually fess up to the discussions that were held and the things yeah. that they could have done differently. So, so that's part of the culture that you need to set, is a culture of safety. Um, that that y y you're trying to fix problems, not fix blame. So if the guys can say, look, this team here, we, 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 we didn't get it right, we thought this was this, and it ended up as that, that's okay. And as long as they feel safe to talk about it, it's fine. But the moment you have a, I'm gonna find who got this wrong, and I'm gonna put a head on a plate type of culture, mm. nobody's gonna say it worked. Uh, and there so, are companies that have cultures oh, like that. Oh, good like grief, there's them. many yes. of them, yes. Yeah. yes. Um, so it's a culture of fear. So what do people do in the way of fear is hide everything. Yes. Uh, and then you learn nothing. So you, you have to have a safety culture where you say, this is not right. We took it on the chin, it's wrong, let's learn from that and never do it again. I love that term, safety culture. Yes. Did, and did you have to personally get involved? in Sometimes with the big deals, obviously, yes. And how did it feel for you as the CEO to have to go to a customer and say, hey, look, guys, you haven't paid your invoice the way that you would have? Oh, I, my sales team knew regularly I would go to any client at any time and ask for money. I've never had a problem with that. Um, but many people do. How yeah, do you overcome well, but, that? But again, it's turned from the top it, because if you say to a sales guy, look, this guy hasn't paid you and, and they agreed to pay you in 60 days and it's, we're heading towards 180 days and uh, you, you go get that money, otherwise tomorrow I'm gonna go get it for you. So, yeah. so and, what did and then you're not terribly useful to me. Right. So the guys would get off the dime quickly if they thought I'd go down there and talk to a client. And often I would go in front of a client and say, um, you know, this, this, maybe this has been overlooked, but uh, we need this payment. And often you'd see a panic on the client's face because the person you're talking to didn't even know that you hadn't been paid. It's been buried somewhere yeah, yeah. down in his organization where somebody thought that they were doing the right thing by deferring. Because they're in, they're in payables and they're, and, and they're yeah. hanging on to right. the money's a good idea, yeah? So, so how did, what was that, what, firstly, what did that feel like as the CEO if you're listening to this podcast? You know, um, what can you say? How do you strike that tone uh, you walk on in, sit down for a cup of coffee and say, we need to talk. Or, or no, what are the words you use? It, it, it depends on the client situation, but often it's, um, you know, I'm sure you don't like it when you don't get paid by your, uh, you know, and, and I, I'm in a similar situation here and you have to understand I'm a publicly listed company here, I've got receivables challenges and uh, you're making a bit of a dent in my metrics. <laughs> if, if, if I translate you tidy that up, you know. I translate this a bit for, for the SME space because I sense Mark the, partly the reason you ask the question is that, is that, like me, you run a number of relatively small companies, certainly small compared to NTT. The need to get that business in 
can make it very difficult for the small company and the proprietor of the small company to go in and have that frank conversation about, I need to be paid on time. So I think, and we've talked about this many times, Mark, the tone around that conversation and the, the need to have that very early on in the relationship and to keep repeating those mm. messages and the need for top-down ownership is absolutely critical. But sometimes when you need the revenue, it can be hard to have those conversations. Hence my question. Yeah, and, and, and please, the, the, you, when we're not in the Western world here, we're in Asia. And um, you know, I can walk into a client in Australia and say, mate, you ain't paid your bill. You know, I would never try that in Japan or Korea or even in India. You know, there's a different approach in every country depending on who the client is. And uh, you, you, you'll take a good steer from the, the, your teams in these various countries on how to approach it. But ultimately, you're coming down to, oi, you owe me money. Mm. You know? But it, it's just the way that you do it is uh, slightly different in depending on which country you're in. Let's uh, finish off with a conversation around payables. Um, mm. You did say when we first started this conversation, that obviously you have to, in managing your cash flow and in turning data craft around, clearly you had to get the money in and also consider how fast one ought to get the money out for your suppliers. I guess every business wears both of these hats. Um, so how many times did you get the sense that when you went to somebody for payment that they were making excuses? Oh, so I thought that had been paid at somebody else's job. Um, and, and how did you manage your payables and still sleep at night? So this is the gamekeeper turned poacher conversation because now uh, once you had or we had the whole company focused on DSO, um, we were overly enthusiastic in paying our, um, uh, our suppliers because we didn't want them to be in a situation that we'd put some of our clients in. So um, then once we had a new CFO that came in uh, a number of years ago and he said, look, I just want to really, really focus down on DPO, days payable outstanding. Um, and I want to make sure that we're not paying people too quickly. And we would find that a number of the vendor partners that we'd been working with, we had unnaturally close relationships with members of our company. Right. Unnaturally. And unnaturally close. Uh, and not in, a, not in a legal way, but just they were too friendly. You know, they're having dinners together, they're playing golf together, and it was... They could know, ask for the invoice they, to be paid. They, they could ask for the invoice to be paid even ahead of time. Yeah. And we'd find that our guys would be somewhat uh, overly generous, you know. Not in a corrupt way in any way, but just, just too enthusiastic. So again, we put metrics on this stuff and we started to track it and we put people on it and all of a sudden behavior changed. So we were at the point of uh, making sure that uh, we would stretch that number out to the point where the vendors still wanted to work with us, so not to the point of pain. And many years ago in my career, I worked for a company that never paid anybody until they had the second or third warning letter. That was their culture across the entire company. So people hated doing business with them, you know? Um, and we didn't want to be that kind of client because there's competitors. You want to make sure that you're easy to do business with, with your supply chain, not just with your clients. Mm. So we just pushed it to the point where we found an acceptable medium, if you wish, and then managed everything to those metrics. And it didn't matter whether you're in China, Korea, India, no matter what, it was the same metrics that applied. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says, look, they pay you always, you, know, you pay them in 30 days in Malaysia, but oh, China, it's always 180 days. No, 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 China's 30 days too. And the moment you set that through, it was amazing. People got used to it and it started to work. Uh, but it took, again, enforcement from the top to get it done. So, and how did you have this conversation with customers, especially those who, uh, sorry, with suppliers, especially those who had been, um, uh, you know, been treated overly generously? Did you kind of have to send them a letter and say, look guys, your, t your payment terms are 60 days, we're going to pay you in 60 days and not 
upfront or, or whatever it is. Well, we're, we're, we're a tech company, so we didn't send letters to anybody. So um, <laughs> I just got to get that across. Wait, this is pre-email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is all done electronically these days. But it, it's, um, you, you know, with a number of our vendors, we had these B2B systems linked together so that their, their systems were linked to our systems. And it was just a matter of meetings to communicate it and making sure that the whole system was set to these new metrics. But the fact that you were electronically linked together meant that there was never an argument as to whether I'm going to get paid or not. They, they knew they were going to get paid. It's just they would manage the timing around it. Um, and one of the things we were very proud of, and our vendors always used to look to us, is they, they used to call us a, like a metronome or a Swiss watch. You know, They knew that we would always pay on the day, on yeah. the day. And of course, with that built up as a history, we were then to say, well, the day's just going to move a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they knew they so would that get confidence paid. and trust in the first place is very yeah, important so we to having never, that conversation. We would never become I a mean, risk. If you're playing yeah. fast and loose with when you pay them because you're suffering from cash flow difficulties, it's very hard to have that conversation, isn't it? Yeah, you're trying to be too clever. Yeah. And, and yeah. that'll bite you. Mm. Yeah. Any final points? No, it's great to talk to you, Bill, and uh, I kind of wish we had longer. Um, but do you have any final questions? Um, uh, I don't think so. I mean, I'm very interested in what you're doing going forward. You've talked a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. Be before we jump into that, and I'm also keen to hear that, uh, but just one final question, mm. just as we wrap up uh, our conversation on receivables specifically, because there are, as you said, there are a lot of bots these days, a lot of systems that you can access in order to smoothen that order to cash process. And I know that you're the CEO of a tech company, but is it really a technological, a technology question to get paid on time? Or is it more of a human uh, trust uh, communication question? It's the latter that's being highly automated, but it's all about trust. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have to build your trust all the way through your supply chain. And the more you can do that, uh, the better. But the more you can automate it so people see less risk in it, the better, all the way through the chain again. And same for your customers on the D. Same, same yeah. from the client point of view. Mm -hmm. um, now, it. it, it it depends on the client, and I'm, I'm sort of racking through the different multinational clients from the biggest global banks, manufacturing companies, and so on. You may have two identical banks uh, competing in the retail space, for example, and one is highly automated in this process and one isn't, and yet they're both you know, competing. Um, so th there isn't one size fits all, unfortunately, but you can see with this um, accelerated impact now that COVID's having where everybody's moving on their digital journey at a faster pace than they yeah. were even this time last year, that more and more of this is getting automated for sure. I guess perhaps part of the reason for the question, because we've talked about this a lot, the assertion which is quite widely made, including by the government uh, in some places, is if you digitise, you get played quicker. Mm. I mean, that's simply not true, is no, it? No, it's I not mean, true. It gives you a channel, it gives you a certain reassurance, as you've said, but yeah. at the end of the day, human beings, relationships, determine when the transaction is done. And it's the key word is trust. Yeah. You know, once you build that trust, and, and as you know, you don't get given trust, you earn it. And, and you've got to take time to get trust into the system. And once you've got that metronome relationship with your client, you know, that you know you're going to get paid, ding dong, ding dong, then you can do great things. But if you are unreliable and vague, uh, you're going to have a big challenge all the way through your supply chain. Mm. Any final words then about the future? Because as you now uh, turn your attention to those startups, as Simon mentioned, yeah. um, how is all of this 
coming for coming through in the work that you do? Well, I, at the end of June, um, I decided I didn't want to do the, um, the the executive big company thing anymore. It had been it's been an amazing journey. There's no question. But um, you know, last year I did 166 nights in a hotel in different parts of the world and 64 nights on aeroplanes. And I remember every single one of them. Um, and I've got a young family, and I don't particularly want to do that forever. So, um, even though NTT have been an amazing, amazing company to work with, um, I uh, now, uh, after a couple of months of rest, genuinely, um, it's been starting to work with NTT Venture Capital uh, as an advisor only at this point on some targets around this part of the world. Um, and uh, which is a very exciting fund, any stage fund, $500 million, just a quick commercial for that. Um, but uh, it's now just getting to know the startups around Southeast Asia, a lot of these companies, particularly in the space of um, software, cybersecurity, and anything in the hyperscale cloud world, um, is things that I'm very, very interested in because my last job was head of transformation and platform services at NTT and building those digital platforms to enable us to do some amazing, amazing things in the future that's highly, highly scalable is where my passion is. And that's where I can see a lot of good companies now starting on those journeys. And I've got a little bit of experience that I can help to them. I can bring together some money and I've got some great contacts with the different tech companies around Asia Pacific where if necessary, I can assemble those teams to work with that funding and with that technology. So that's the area that I'm going to be exploiting in the near future. We wish you all the best. Thank Thanks you very for much, coming Mark. in today. Thanks, Bill. Cheers, Simon. Bill Padfield. And if you want to know more, please email us at service at riabu.com or leave a comment next to this audio podcast on the platform that you're listening to us. Bye for now.